Hi there, and welcome to another Dishcast. We're on a roll here, and I am thrilled to have a man today who I think is probably the most nuanced and sophisticated political scientist and writer alive. There you go, Frank. That's a, a <laughs> nice compliment to start with. But I do. I think that Frank Fukuyama's work is intensely subtle, interesting, calm, and persuasive. And also, to my mind, regularly and persistently misunderstood or misrepresented. He, he's currently at Stanford, and he taught at Johns Hopkins and George Mason. George Mason. He's the author of almost a dozen books, most famously The End of History and The Last Man, published shortly after the fall of the Soviet Union. His new book, kind of in my way, a, a sequel to that, it's sort of a, a reminder 20 years later of what he actually said in that book, liberalism, liberalism and its discontents. Because the liberal settlement, as it were, however resilient it has been, is under challenge now, from, from, and understandably so. Frank, welcome to the Dish Cast. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much for having me. You're so welcome. I'm sorry I had to cancel earlier because of COVID, of, God, of, of all things. But tell me, I mean, in the end of, towards the end of the end of history, the part that most people didn't read or think about, you talk about the people who live in a settled liberal society, liberal democracy, and you call them the last men or men without chests, which is, I think, Nietzsche's uh, description. Who are we in this liberal democracy in 2022? Well, I think that the men without chests metaphor uh, really has to do with a certain human emotion uh, of pride. And it's based on a psychology the ancient philosophers like Plato and Aristotle understood very well, especially Plato, who said that there's this part of the soul he labeled thumos or spiritedness. And, you know, the idea behind that is that people don't just crave material goods, they crave recognition, glory, people's opinions of them uh, matter very much. And oftentimes, if they don't get adequate recognition, they get extremely angry. And if you think about it, that motivates a lot of politics. You know, people believe that politics is over at the distribution of material goods, and obviously that's important. But you think about, you know, many of the, the issues, you know, women's rights, civil rights, gay rights, these are all dignity issues fundamentally. And they're being pushed by people that feel they're not recognized and they're not treated with the kind of respect that they uh, deserve. And <clears throat> I think that the idea of the last man, it is it does all come from Nietzsche, who had a kind of contempt for liberal politics in the modern world that had emerged in Europe in the 19th century, where there basically wasn't this pride and aspiration you know, to greater things because these liberal societies had achieved peace and prosperity. And so people were content to you know, feather their own nest, uh, pay attention to their little circles of friends and family, but not be involved in you know, anything greater than themselves. And I think that this was the condemnation that he had of you know, in, in a sense of a peaceful, successful liberal society, that people don't just want peace and prosperity, they want community, they want striving. And I think, as I said in one of the passages in that book, if they can't struggle for justice, they'll struggle against justice, because what they want to do is struggle. 
that there remains this deep yearning in the human psyche to advance oneself or to have oneself acknowledged, to have oneself honored in a way, talked about, put center. For me, the, the whole concept of a little democracy in which you leave politics behind, and you cultivate your own garden, you have your own friends, and you don't engage in any great political projects always struck me as an incredibly nice way of living. I, 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 I regarded it as a kind of wonderful achievement that Western society had created a space where we could just get on with our lives and create what meaning we have in our own spaces. We can't necessarily, we have to learn. We can't impose that on the society as a whole. We can't demand other people have the same values as we do. And yet, of course, it's very unsatisfying for people to go on thinking, well, my life is about getting a mortgage, getting a family or whatever, settling down, having a nice garden, and, and, and then dying, which, which is really what liberal democracy offers you. And that is a lot, I think. I mean, you ask people in Ukraine whether that's worth dying for, I think they would say, yes, it absolutely is. It's underrated. Do you agree with that? Or do you think that liberalism, the way it's been constructed, has kind of led to what what we used to call the, the the empty public square, the hollowness of life, the m missing purpose, the things that make us miserable. It does look as if Americans are pretty miserable. I mean, they're, they're doing all sorts of things that, that drugs, suicide, depression, anxiety, these seem to be all highly, I mean, I think, for example, I'm just blathering now, but but when I read studies of what's called now LGBTQIA youth, and they seem to be more depressed than the, the gay youth of my day. And I'm like, why? <laughs> Do you understand what we've done? Do you have any idea of what, the freedom you know have? But of course, immediately you get it. You take it for granted, and, and then you want something else. So where do, you, where do your sympathies lie? Well, I think that there is this cycle. You know, liberalism started out as a doctrine that would basically say, okay, let's put these higher aspirations aside, especially those that were created by religion for the good life, because we're killing each other over it. And what we do want is that peace and security that, that you mentioned. That's the lowered horizon of a liberal society. And that's a pretty good thing if you fought, you know, religious wars for 150 years, as Europeans had done in the middle of the 17th century, or in 1945, as you're digging yourself out of the rubble of Berlin, you realize that wars over national identity are not such a great thing. Or if you're living under a communist dictatorship in 1989 or 1991, you also realize that that peaceful, prosperous life is not a bad thing. But I do think that people begin to take it for granted. So in Europe today, you know, especially in a young country like Poland, virtually, you know, great majority of the population were born after the fall of communism. They have no living memory of what a communist dictatorship is like. And so it's easy for people in that situation, young people to say, well, you know, Brussels is a tyranny. You know, the, Brussels is really the place that is the source of, of evil in the, in the modern world. And it's that, you know, failure of historical imagination and, and also personal experience that I think makes people not appreciate, you know, the, the ordinary life that liberal societies give you. I, I recall seeing at some point in the in the pandemic, uh, these people showing up at a school board meeting, you know, wearing Stars of David on their jackets, because 
they were protesting, you know, like a vaccine mandate or a mask mandate and comparing themselves to, you know, Jews going to Auschwitz. And I think that that's possible only in a very secure, but also very superficial and historically unaware society. But, you know, I, I think that that's what happens in life, that people do forget the reasons that the peace and prosperity are not such bad things. And they, if, if it's taken away from them, they remember, but otherwise, you know, they want other things. Yeah. And of course, they live in societies and we live in societies where, where it's quite evident from the minute you start. I mean, I was brought up, for example, as a, a faithful Catholic and have an understanding of the world that reflects that orthodoxy. But as soon as I ventured out of my elementary school, out of my circle of family and very close Catholic friends, I realized, oh, um, lots of people don't agree with this. In fact, lots of people hate it and think I'm an idiot. So how do I live with these people? And of course, that's a process of just, I think, becoming an adult in modern life that you realize we just have different worldviews and we have to somehow accommodate that. And I cannot see how you end that. I mean, how do you get, again, in modernity, a radical agreement by a large majority of people about some kind of transcendent or moral or easily accepted virtue? How do you? I don't think... Yeah, you well, it's, it's, it's impossible. I, I, it's a fantasy that you're ever going to go back. In the first place, I think if you really are historically aware, you'll realize that there was never a period in which you had this agreement, you know, on common values where everyone was pulling together in a, in a great national, you know, a unity. You weren't um, around there in 14th century France? Where no, I, a, well, I experienced, that, <laughs> I experienced that personally, and I can tell you that that was not the way it was. No, but look, I mean, um, you know, you take a country like Poland today where you've got a populist movement that's very angry at, you know, the EU and, and all these things that are supposedly being done to Poland, but it's one of the most homogeneous uh, societies in the world, ethnically and religiously. Everybody is a Catholic, you know, virtually, and yet they're extremely polarized against one another. And I just think that this idea that there was a, you know, this time when everybody agreed on a, on a big substantive idea, you know, coming out of religion or coming out of a, you know, deep national tradition is, is nostalgic. You know, it's, it's kind of nostalgic fantasy for a time that never existed. And so we constantly have to deal with, with deep divisions. And so that seemingly uniform Poland is incredibly polarized today between, you know, urban professional types and people that live more conservative lives in the countryside. They really hate each other and they have diversity problem that really, I think, can only be overcome by some form of liberalism and not by some imagined agreement on, you know, returning to an imagined age when everybody, you know, was follow the same God. But then the question becomes, of course, how do you defend liberalism? And you point out rightly in The End of History that we've given up defending liberalism on an assertion of a universal truth, just natural right, that we, we know we can't get consensus in modernity, that somehow liberalism is true fundamentally because it actually does reflect the fundamental equality of human beings as it was understood by the early Enlightenment figures, particularly someone like Locke. And so we've had to kind of defend it more pragmatically, less ambitiously, and so you end up with a kind of Rawlsian defense of liberalism, which is just like, we like it. 
it works. And we can make relatively persuasive arguments about that, but we're not actually going to resolve this for good and all. I think of it from the, in the right, you have Oakshot's defense of, of liberalism, which is just that this has become a way of life in certain parts of the West. It doesn't have any grand universal claims, actually. It has the claim that it worked here for reasons that are particular to here, and we like to keep it that way because we enjoy a society in which individuals individuals can flourish. And that generation of individual character and nerve and personality and, and, and virtue is, is a good thing. Does this mean that it's highly vulnerable? Well, yes and no. You know, that position of Oakshaw's that you described was also the one taken by my mentor, Samuel Huntington, who said mm -hmm. that he liked liberal democracy, but it was basically just an emanation of Western culture and that other cultures began with different religious premises and therefore those ideas wouldn't uh, take. Before, you know, conceding that point, I would say a couple of things that there does seem to be a case that you can make for the universalism that liberalism claims, but a lot of people today dismiss, which is that as people do, you know, become more aware of the outside world, their values change in certain ways. And, you know, they tend to, you know, be more critical of established authority. They, you know, have a greater desire to participate and so forth. And the ideas that have conquered the world are not simply culturally bounded. I mean, for example, very hard to find a single regime anywhere in the world that asserts, as many regimes did in historical in the historical past, that there's a natural hierarchy of human beings. You know, that certain people were born to be masters and other people were born to be slaves. They all kind of take to heart that Jefferson, you know, quip about it's not the case that certain people were born with saddles on their backs. And even in non-democratic societies, you know, Chinese claim that they're actually serving the interests of the people. The other thing that I am always struck by is the way that people vote with their feet, right? So every year you've got tens of thousands, sometimes millions of people that are fleeing less developed countries, war-torn countries, poorly governed, corrupt countries. And, you know, they have a choice in places that they can go, and they almost always choose uh, liberal societies. And nobody leaves those liberal societies, you know, to go live in Guatemala or, you know, you know, some very poor, violent country. So I do think that, you know, there is at least a, a glimmer of uh, a universal longing for a basic level of freedom and security that liberal societies are, you know, best poised to provide people. I think that's a very sane observation, that you don't need to have some grand philosophical truth, as it were, big T, to point out that liberalism kind of works better than anything else in accepting the equality of humans that most of us at some point in modernity acknowledge. It, it's the best way of dealing with a society in which there are differing views by, from different people, very different values, which is just a fact. How do we deal with it? Well, we deal with it by liberalism. But let's get now to the recent book, which is that liberalism, of course, itself is not a completely stable and static entity. It itself evolves. And I think if, I mean, you and I are roughly the same generation, I think. And, you know, when we grew up uh, seeing the end of communism, uh, which was, of course, the epochal question of our time, 
seeing that collapse and seeing the extraordinary success of liberal democracy as it kind of sprung up, it seemed to spring up all across Europe. There was a headiness to this, was there not? It was a headiness that somehow liberalism was triumphant, the kind of headedness that led us to believe insanely that we could actually manufacture it from the ground in a place like Iraq or, or Afghanistan, with the two least hospitable places on earth to this kind of idea. But right. you can see the headiness of it. And there was a, it's true, is it not, I think in retrospect, that liberals were incredibly complacent, not very attentive to the flaws in liberalism itself, and it kind of started to sour in the early 2000s and 2010s especially. Maybe you could unpack that story of how liberalism became neoliberalism, then became itself a kind of orthodoxy you couldn't question. Sure. So I think that there were deformations of what I would call classical liberalism that occurred both on the, the right and on the left. And one goes by the label of neoliberalism, and you might say the other one could be labeled woke liberalism, right? The one on the left. So the, the, the one on the right was really the transformation of liberal ideas about the importance of property rights, the market economy, freedom to transact, but extending them in a completely uh, unsupportable way where the state was demonized as the enemy of growth and of individual freedom and across the board in all circumstances. And it led to a series of economic policies that basically undermine you know, the regulatory and redistributive functions that I think any modern democratic state needs to undertake, which led directly to the kind of inequality that we see growing you know, year by year in the United States, the rise of a class of oligarchs that have you know, multiple billions of dollars when people are being uh, shut out of their homes and their mortgages, this sort of thing. So that was the deformation on the right that was not necessarily implied by the fundamentals of liberalism, but got carried, you know, in that direction by intellectuals like Milton Friedman and others in the Chicago school. The woke liberalism goes through a similar evolution. So if you, if you look at something like identity politics, there is a version of identity politics that is actually quite liberal, right? If you say, like Martin Luther King, that Black Americans have never been included in the institutions, they've never been treated equally by the law, uh, by public policy, and they need to be treated, you know, without regard to the color of their skin. I mean, he's got that famous line in his speech at the, you know, at the, at the Washington rally in 1964, where he says, you know, I look forward to a day where my children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their characters, you know, as individuals. And that over time got transformed into a belief that actually what's fundamental to us is not our individual characters, but actually our race, our ethnicity, our gender, our sexual orientation, all of these identity categories that were historically marginalized but then under this new understanding of identity, you know, become essential characteristics. So that the first thing that you judge a person by is which of these identity groups they belong to and not, you know, what they've achieved or what they're like uh, as an individual. And that is not the fulfillment of liberal ideas. It's really a deformation uh, of them. And I think that that explains, you know, a lot of the movement of the progressive left 
away from classical liberalism towards this, you know, group consciousness notion that is the successor ideology to, you know, to liberal individualism. Yeah, let's take each of those in turn, because I think they're both worth unpacking. Neoliberalism's excess. Let's think about that a little bit. I mean, I think that, for example, the WTO agreement that we're going to just allow China in, because we believe this is just going to, the whole world is heading towards liberal democracy, and that that will have, you know, we know because we've done our studies that, in fact, all free trade is always a zero-sum game, always non-zero-sum, and we're going to, even if there are lots of industries in America will be wiped out, we'll have cheaper inputs and cheaper imports, we will be better off in the aggregate, which there's a strong economic case to be made for that. But politically and sociologically, what it meant was that large sections of the American people were hung out to dry. They did not have, and when they, these these banal platitudes about retraining and all that, which which it's, you can't really do that in the way that, that people wanted to do that. We had a choice, and I take responsibility. At the time, I was editing the New Republic, and we, as a liberal magazine, defended NAFTA, for example, on this slightly, I think, dewy-eyed liberal internationalist optimism. We also didn't worry about the collapse of unions. We didn't worry about the way in which capitalism was tearing the family apart. In, in some we also way. didn't worry about corporations getting larger and larger and larger to the point that they became monopolies that have so much political power that nobody can really challenge them. We also didn't notice the fact that the world economy was changing so that cognitive ability was becoming much more valuable with respect to non-cognitive skills, which have always been, and I mean that in a very rough sense, in, so that nerds and smart people suddenly get, began having a huge amount of the wealth and growth accrue to them in a way that unbalanced the, the society in which working class people or people who have skills who aren't actually what we call these cognitive elites felt increasingly left behind. And liberals in government just said, well, get over it. Or let's look at something else. Well, let's change the subject. And then, of course, you have the crash of 08, which is a kind of absolutely crucial. When the, the neoliberal elites have deregulated, also on these ideological grounds, crash. The idea that governments should not strongly regulate stock markets would be really quite remarkable to Adam Smith. Right? I mean, it's, they forgot. Sure. They forgot that someone like Smith absolutely believe the state, a strong state, was essential to creating the context for actual free trade. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the, the, yeah. the economics always had to give way to the politics because politics is, is the key thing. Economics follows that. And yet the right kind of going into this world where they thought like, well, the economics matters and the politics will take care of itself. Well, it didn't, did it? No, you're, you're absolutely right about that. You know, I've always thought that liberalism by itself is not a stable system if all you have are free markets that are protected by a kind of minimal state, that it does lead to increasing inequality and therefore really different disparate social outcomes. And you need it to relieve that tension that would then be produced by some form of democracy, which, you know, and, and there was a time when if an American politician uttered the word redistribution, you'd have, he or she would have their heads handed to them. But in fact, you know, that's what happens in liberal societies. You have social protections, you buffer people against, you know, the market inequalities, people lose their jobs, 
not because they're lazy or shiftless, but because, you know, there's been a change in the global economy and all of a sudden the industry they're working in is rendered obsolete. You know, it's not their fault. And so you do need, I think, a state that steps in to protect people like that. But I think under the um, influence of these neoliberal ideas, you know, the Nobel Prize winning economists were the ones that gave a highbrow justification for you know, why these policies in the end would be self-sustaining. And they're simply wrong about that. And I think, you know, most people can see, you know, what that error was at this point. Also, another neoliberal idea, open borders, which we forget yeah. was actually pioneered on the right. Well, again, this is something that you'd have to be our age to remember. But, but you know, the Wall Street Journal was an open borders journal for a long time. The, the notion that the market trumped any other, to coin, to coin a term, any other consideration, which of course meant dramatic and sort of really almost unprecedented shifts in demogra demographics in the West. Big jump in the proportion of foreign born in America with all that you can see in history, the consequences of that. It takes time to assimilate, to absorb, to adjust, to come to some common understanding of what it means to be a citizen. Yet these neoliberals as well, and I think I'm, I'm putting the blame on them as much as the left, just said, well, screw it. Uh, let them all in. Let's, let's, and it's good for the business and it's good for the economy. And anyone who is, and this is the key move from both the right and the left, anyone who is concerned about this is the racist. Right. So you immediately cut off the possibility of a debate about it, which mm -hmm. I think kind of suppresses the issue which then sits there suppressed forever until somebody comes along and decides, well, I'm going to raise this issue. And that's what right. Trump did. And that revolutionized American politics. But I think people, for, people concern themselves with Trump. They don't realize that Trump was made possible by the elites doing nothing and dismissing all of this for a long time. They In that sense, they created the possibility for him. I think that's absolutely right. You know, one aspect of democratic sovereignty is that the people get to decide who the people are. And if they lose control over their ability to say, you know, who's an American, then in a sense, they're no longer democratically sovereign. Control over your borders, I think, has to be a key aspect of, you know, any democracy. The other thing that was going on at that time, not just the economists were saying this is going to be economically good for us, but you had this kind of multiculturalist ideology that attacked the idea of assimilation. You know, I mean, obviously nobody today is going to say, well, everybody has to be like a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant straight-laced, you know, believer in, you know, a certain particular religious doctrine. But, you know, there is a kind of American culture that is pretty easily accessible. But if you don't actually have even that minimal amount in common, you're not going to have a society. And as the economists were trying to open up the, the you know, the, the gates to everybody. So I think, you know, on the multicultural left, there was, you know, an open attack on the idea that we wanted to assimilate anybody and that people ought to be allowed to keep their own customs and, you know, stay in their own self-regarding communities over the course of, you know, generations. And that's really the route to Bosnia or to, to, you know, to Iraq or Syria. I mean, that's not really the basis of a successful democracy. You know, people like to live roughly in the same communities they grew up in. They, 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 they kind of like stability to some, to some extent. And the well, they like it. 
Yeah, but in the second generation, you know, it, I think that was kind of the key to the success of immigrant communities. They want to leave the family restaurant or the family neighborhood, and they want to get out. You know, that was one of the reasons why I think actually teaching English was so important. My father was born in Los Angeles in 1921. His father had come over to escape being drafted into the Russo-Japanese War, and he just had no patience for bilingualism or multilingualism because he said, you know, the single most important thing my public school education in LA did was I learned English and you know, speak it without an accent and therefore you can get a job. So he goes on to get a PhD at the University of Chicago. So I do think that, you know, assimilation is a, is a multi-generational process, but it really needs to take place at a certain level if, you know, immigrant groups really are going to be successful as individuals. It also is important, it seems to me, that to facilitate the integration, I would use the word integration rather than assimilation, because we're not hoping to suppress different kinds of cultures. We're, we're hoping to instill a similar political understanding of what it means to be an American and the certain core values that we take to be American. And the other part that makes that work or not work is simply the number of immigrants. And if the, if the, if yeah. the influx is so large that in fact they can exist among themselves and actually sustain their own languages and their own communities, then, then it could really be a problem of, 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 a, of a sort of isolated minority within the country. You see this more, more in, in, in Britain, say, for example, with, with, with family migration from Pakistan, where there is really no sense that so many of them, and it can be so self-sufficient, that, that the ability to integrate and assimilate into Britain becomes harder and harder. Similarly, with even though with Latinos in America, obviously it's much much easier, and I think it's going, to be honest, pretty well in terms of where Latino Americans want to be and who they want to be. I think the Democrats are finding that the Latinos actually don't quite want to be permanently yeah. understood as this oppressed mass that needs socialism to help them. They, they actually don't. They have a very different idea. They come here not to escape those doctrines. They come here to embrace American uh, values. But anyway, yes, so many of us on the right became, I think, started believing our own bullshit, as it were. And, and the, 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 the internal dissents became policed that when people... Well, like me said at the beginning of the Bush administration, hold on, what are you doing with all this spending? When you had that kind of extraordinary response to 9-11. So you can see where the right went wrong, I think. Now, where did the left go wrong? Because they, there was a point in the 90s where the left simply became kind of pseudo-neoliberals. I mean, the Blair, uh, Clinton were, although their argument wasn't that bad, their argument was, in fact, that 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 this new world, this new world is going to generate a lot of revenues. So let's spend those revenues on the poor, on the public realm. And I think that's a, actually a pretty persuasive and important and not absolutely respectable politics. But of course, it doesn't attack the fundamentals, which is creating this massive growing inequality. And, and really, as time goes by, the sense that ordinary people can't, get, can't do better for themselves through capitalism. The sense is that it's not going to work anymore for me. I could, I, I'm going to be stuck with student loans. I can't afford to rent. I can't get to places where I want to do what I want to do. But then the left starts to 
feel discontent with all of this. And you have the emergence of critical theory. Obviously, that critical theory had emerged earlier, but it begins to really take hold. And we can see it now in retrospect better than we saw it at the time, but that's what was happening. Explain to me what you think critical theory is and why it matters philosophically. I have a hard time, Frank, I'm talking to my liberal and left-wing friends saying, look, it this is really not about being nice to gay people or trans people or it is it is it is not just an extra inclusive form of liberalism it isn't it is a it is an attempt to replace liberalism because it believes that liberalism is incapable of delivering and not only that is designed designed to make sure that inequality survives that it's actually designed for example to oppress non-white people. And that's, that's what they're arguing in 1989. And this is what Delgado and, and, and Bell and these other people are saying. They're saying, we look at the civil rights revolution, we look at the liberal democracy, and we, we don't see black people doing that much better. Therefore, we have to change the system. That's right. Yeah, I think that one of the crucial things that happened in this period was that the, victim, the perceived victims of inequality as perceived by the left, began to change from class to these identity uh, categories of race, ethnicity, gender, uh, sexual orientation. And, you know, there is a reason for, for, for making those distinctions because, you know, the way that a black person in America is mistreated is different from the way a woman is mistreated, different from the uh, way that gays and lesbians are mistreated, you know, and so forth. So there's a there's a certain basis for making those distinctions. But I think as time went on, those identity categories displaced uh, class altogether. Because once you start saying that whiteness becomes a category of privilege, regardless of actually your socioeconomic standing, then you basically cut off the whole white working class from any kind of sympathy. And indeed, you know, that was one of the things that happened, that there was this perception that actually the worst racists were these working class uh, whites in South Boston or, you know, the Archie Bunker types. So you lose your connection with what had been the base, you know, the Democratic Party through most of the uh, 20th century. And you also start worrying about uh, these identity categories that then become essentialized. And so it's not just that there's a high correlation between poverty and being African-American, but somehow you know, the mere fact that you're African-American identifies you in such a deep way that, you know, that's the way that the rest of the society needs to deal with you. And, you know, in terms of critical theory, I, I have a whole chapter in the book that, you know, I, I lived this personally because as I was getting out of college in the 1970s, I actually went to Paris to study with Jacques Derrida and Roland Barthes, and I met Foucault when I was uh, still an undergraduate. Really? Uh, and it was a you know transformation in thought that basically injected a a kind of subjectivism that in a way masked what was really going on, which was a a kind of effort to displace you know the existing elites. And I think this really culminates in in Foucault's work because you know what he says is in the old days, if you were an elite, you were a monarch, you just killed your enemies and you could exercise power very openly. But in the modern world, we do it differently. We do it through 
these structures that people think are politically and morally neutral, like modern natural science. But in fact, that modern natural science masks the domination of some people by others. And, you know, he went through a whole bunch of categories like incarceration, homosexuality, mental illness, where, you know, people had been cast out of the mainstream by scientific, scientists bearing scientific language. But then he generalized it. You know, I mean, it's undoubtedly true that, the, uh, you know, this, this happened. The DSM, was, you know, the psychological manual characterized homosexuality as a mental disorder for many, many years. So, you know, he begins with a true assumption, but then in a way radicalizes it to say that the whole project of modern natural science, what he called biopower, was an elite conspiracy to basically enslave people, but to th make them think that they're not being enslaved because it was using this kind of neutral language. And I think that that you know, then explains this extraordinary sensitivity to language that we label political correctness. You know, it comes directly out of someone like Foucault and, and these post-structuralists that said that language is actually just a tool that elites use. They create the categories by which they can oppress you, and you don't even realize that that's happening to you. And, you know, this then blossoms into critical theories of, of different sorts where liberalism itself becomes one of those structures that seemingly is egalitarian and open to everybody, but in fact is a power structure that's manipulated behind the scenes by elites that want to pretend that they're you know, egalitarian and open, but, but are really using that liberal structure to keep people down. And I think that's where critical theory has ended up, you know, the, the earlier critical theorists, I actually talk about a number of them, like Richard Mills and Carol Pateman and so forth in, in, in the book. And, you know, they were at least serious intellectuals that were trying to debate, you know, the Western tradition. The, the more recent ones, I think, are, you know, really lightweights that have just carried these ideas to ridiculous extremes. At the same time, isn't by saying, for example, that the natural science, let's take the natural science position with Foucault, biopower. Well, that does two things at once. It, it, it's appealing because it tells you, actually, we know the real secret here. <laughs> you, you're deluded, so we have this great moment of revelation in which you are unveiling the, the dark forces behind it. You're also suggesting that everyone's living in that old Marxist sense of false consciousness so that we will have to, you know, it's the same same parallel. What it means essentially is that the notion, the very enlightenment notion that we could have some cognitive neutrality, in other words, we could have some agreement about objective truth, and we could make a distinction between that which we could prove through the scientific method and other kinds of truths which we can't prove in that way, which are more subject to debate or discussion, but, 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 but then you would lose any objective criteria to judge anything and you become lost in power the very power that you are attempting it seems to me to check That's in fact, right. it's just a way of reinventing the power when i see for example when i see the way in which the modern left for example and you're right about language when they they say you're no longer call, we're no longer calling people gay men we're calling them lgbtqia plus people <laughs> Okay, now, what is that if it isn't actually an exercise of power by elites 
in exactly the way Foucault argued, was about advancing their power over others, not actually saying anything true. And when you actually flush them out, I think they would say, if they were being honest, yes, this is our em emphasis about, because it's all power, and it's either us or you, and therefore we are going to force this through actually changing language itself. And we'll do that through the universities, through the media, and we will make it so that you cannot even speak the language that allows you to criticize what we're saying. No, that's right. I think there was a recent uh, poll by Gallup or some other organization that said that, you know, among Hispanics, only 4% of them actually like the term Latinx, <laughs> which, you know, is kind of an illustration of that point that this is But why wouldn't they? This is Latin culture. You are, you are honestly going into Latin America and saying, we are going to rid you of any distinction between men and women. And the very language is gendered. No, that's right. And I think, you know, the chickens are really coming home to roost now because the same kind of conspiracy-minded theorizing that Foucault, you know, launches on the left has now drifted over to the right. And so, you know, you saw this in spades during the COVID epidemic where public health officials, scientists, you know, were castigated. And it was exactly the same argument that Foucault was making, you know, Anthony Fauci claims to be a doctor and a scientist who's being objective, but in fact, his agenda is to take away your rights because he's part of the left that is only interested in power. And then, you know, it just becomes, you know, as you say, it's just a, it's a zero-sum power grab between these different groups that are using this language to, you know, to get their way, but there's no neutral ground on which you can actually agree on, on basic fact. It's interesting because I did a blog post about, you know, how the, the conspiracy theory theorizing about science had drifted from left to right. And I said, you know, I don't think that anybody in the Trump White House has actually read Foucault. And I was corrected by a, a professor who actually was following this stuff. And she pointed to like three or four individuals in the White House that had actually written about Foucault and people like Peter Thiel that, you know, do know something about you know, Michael, Michael Anton has yeah, undoubtedly yeah. studied Foucault. Yeah. So, you know, left and right are converging in, in this attack on, you know, one of the fundamental liberal, you know, achievements of the modern age, which is, you know, the whole structure of modern natural science. Yes, which one would hope would be a pretty persuasive argument to the middle that this is dangerous. And that I see this, for example, let's, let's one little example of this. And this is interesting because it also comes into the question of thumos. Let's take a, a, a classic contemporary slogan of the woke left. Trans women are women. Normally in all caps, just in case you miss. <laughs> miss yeah, it's, right. it's not something to be offered gently in an argument. It is a screaming slogan that is designed to suppress any. And what do they mean by that? What they mean is that they want to redefine the scientific understanding of what it is to be a woman. And even though you could say scientifically or objectively, it is clearly there are serious differences between a trans woman who was once formerly male and has been become female and someone who's always been female. It's just, it's just reality. But, but when you say that reality, it is repurposed by saying that your definition of reality, your presentation of reality is actually a form of, and if you want to recognize the dignity of trans women, which I do, but you have to junk empirical reality and scientific fact 
in order to shoehorn this in. And we have to do that because otherwise people are going to feel bad about themselves. And my feeling is, I'm, you're not going to make me tell some, an untruth. I, just, I can't get past, I still believe in some objective reality. I absolutely believe in accommodating trans women as much as is possible with only a few tiny little exceptions, which would, because bi biology makes a difference in sports, there are some, some questions about women's jails and women's shelters. These are not huge issues, but they, 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 they require a little compromise. But it's that little compromise that is regarded as the institution of bigotry, because there is no objective basis to have a reasonable discussion. That's where we are, right? Well, that's where we are. I think, you know, the trans issue is <clears throat> probably excuse me, the, the most extreme extension of the notion of autonomy. So one of, one of the arguments that I make in my book is that liberalism is based on the protection of autonomy, your basic right to live as you choose and, and so forth. But with every passing decade, there's been an expansion of the uh, scope of that autonomy. And, and you know, in, in the trans debate, it extends to this question of human biology, that you know, we are so autonomous that we are not limited by the bodies that we are born with. And so if you decide that you're the opposite gender that, you know, biologically you seem to be born with, it's your right to, you know, to make that change. And it just runs up against a whole bunch of, you know, hard stops in terms of, you know, the reality of, you know, what makes men and women different and so forth. But to challenge that idea that actually maybe my gender is not completely up to me. You know, maybe it isn't just a matter of my individual choice. Generates this furious reaction because, first of all, people don't want to see their autonomy limited, and they don't want to be uh, told that you know they need to accept you know the the, the sorts of conditions under which they're born and, and 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 so forth. Now, most of us don't want to accept that. You know, if you're born poor, you don't want to except the fact that you'll always be poor. If you're born a certain race, you don't want to think, well, I'm limited by that. But, you know, there, there are, in fact, limits to human autonomy. The other problem is with community, because you can't have any sort of community unless you share things with other people. And if everybody, you know, decides to make up their own rules about, you know, the society that they're living in, you're actually not going to have a society. And that's the other very problematic thing about, you know, our modern understanding of autonomy. It's not just the freedom to make moral choices within an inherited framework, you know. I mean, I think that was the original Christian idea that Adam and Eve have moral choice and therefore dignity, but they, they choose wrong and it violates God's will. But, you know, eventually people started putting themselves in the position of God saying, well, my autonomy is not just to follow God's will or not, it's to actually substitute myself for God, where I make up the rules. This was all in Nietzsche, you know, his character Zarathustra was, you know, the freest person in the world because he got to make up morality itself. And I think this is very deeply imbued now in our culture, where, you know, our freedom is so extensive that it, it extends to, you know, these very basic value questions and you know, it's really uh, hard to have community if everybody is making up the rules as they go along. Yes. How do you 
persuade people that, for example, the lesson that we tell children, which is that you can be anything you want to be, which is a lie. Almost every single person has limited talents in some areas, better talents in another. They have ways in which they can excel, and there are ways in which I will never be a good mathematician. I know it. It's okay. See, I'm also reminded of this moment where a friend of mine with his husband was trying to adopt a child and went through the normal adoption processes. And it was an open adoption, but they had a, a little little group to talk it through beforehand with other couples that were seeking adoption. And they went around the table, first of all, talking about grief, about how they couldn't have their own kids. And this is this is the tragedy, and this is why they're going for adoption. They get to my friend, and he says, well, me and my husband are having sex now for many years, but it just can't, doesn't seem to work. <laughs> uh, we can't have a baby either. And I was just like, there's ob <laughs> obviously he meant it as a joke, but in some way it isn't a joke, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I, no, I can't mm -hmm. reproduce with another man and have a child. It's both, I, mean, I can't mm -hmm. because I'm a human being and there are, there are natural necessities. That I will never be six foot three. I wish I were, but I'm not. Where do we get the temperament in a way, the character to accept limits, to accept that we are not fully autonomous, that we, and in fact, there is some great wisdom in accepting and embracing who we are in a way that isn't completely transformative. That it's just, well, we're, that's who we are. We're going to live. We have a certain character, personality. We're going to die. Do what we can with it. Why, why does that old sense of tragedy and realism, why is that gone from our world? Because it's, Without it, it seems to me, you are going to be incredibly frustrated. And you are yeah. going to be extremely unhappy. You, you are going to constantly weigh yourself up about thing, uh, against things you can't be and ignoring things you can be. Right. And it's, it's a terrible psychological trap. Well, unfortunately, it's a trap that's very deeply embedded in the way that we modern people think about ourselves. This is a topic that I addressed at much greater length in my previous book on identity. And uh, here I, I blame Rousseau in a certain way, because Rousseau had this idea that, you know, what we are inside is good. And it's really society with all of its rules and norms and laws that pile on us these expectations, but that true human happiness really consists of that authentic inner self being allowed to express itself. And this is just, you know, this idea has, it, it leads to what's called expressive individualism. I mean, the notion that every kid graduating from high school has a Van Gogh or a Beethoven somewhere hidden, you know, deep within their inner soul that's simply being suppressed by, you know, these, these rigid rules that they're uh, supposed to follow. And that's why, you know, you get this phenomenon at high school graduations where people, these kids get constantly advised, follow your passions, you know, let that inner, that inner self out. Don't accept all of these artificial limits. And, you know, I think that graduation speakers need to give a slightly different message, you know, that you can have a happy life understanding your own limitations. All of us have those limitations, but that doesn't, you know, that doesn't detract from your ability to do things to the fullest of your ability, but you have to understand what those abilities are. It's just a different way of thinking about ourselves, I think, that is needed.
But it's a thinking that is not that compatible with a sort of radical egalitarianism, is it? And, 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 and that, in turn, I think is related to what democratic life is, right? It, democratic life will increasingly insist upon equalities. When you see this in you know, Aristotle and Plato's discussion of democracy, that there is something within democracy that constantly seeks the end of all hierarchies of any kind. And it's a kind of the nature of the regime, this multicolored regime. I think it's what Plato, Socrates, of course, but Plato describes it as. And there is this, I mean, I'm always, I've said this before on this podcast, but there are some extraordinary passages there about democracy that, that we will not, no longer will they recognize the difference between a citizen and a non-citizen. We will not be able to tolerate the differences between men and women. That the students will be teaching their teachers, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. That the rich will be dressing like the poor. That there is something in the, and of course what Plato and Aristotle would say, is that this liberal balance we've got here, this liberal democracy, is an interlude before democracy itself just takes over and we end up, as we are inevitably built, in some sort of tyranny. Because that is where this radical egalitarianism is the only way it is resolved. What do you, what do you make of, of that? Where, where were Plato and Aristotle wrong? Yeah. I would say that in discussing my book, this is one of the uh, fundamental issues because a lot of people would say, you know, so I claim that woke liberalism, like neoliberalism, is a deformation of true liberalism or classical liberalism. And, you know, the counter argument that I get, especially on the woke liberalism, is no, it's not a deformation. It's just the working out of the interior premises of liberalism. And therefore, it's kind of inevitable that it's going to move in this direction. And I'm, you know, I, I acknowledge that, you know, I can't prove that that's not the case. I do think, however, that, you know, when you run up against certain kind of reality, you know, and in the gender discussions, you know, there is a biological reality underlying, you know, all of these discussions. People eventually will kind of realize that, you know, they're they're trying to support positions that that ultimately are not uh, supportable. And if you look at, you know, popular opinion, certainly on, you know, most of the these gender-related questions, you know, they're they're not what you know, the, the, the advocates are pushing. And so, you know, in a democracy, you do have to accept, you know, kind of the broad mass of opinion. If you can't persuade people that trans women are women, full stop, then you're probably going to have to back off that position. So I don't know. I, I Except, of course, they cannot or will not back off that position because it's, it's, a, it's an almost, at this point, it's almost a religious fiat, that to say anything else would be to admit there's even a debate about this. I noticed that the, the person in charge sort of all of those issues in the White House, Dr. Rachel Levine, said recently over the weekend in, about the subject, there is no argument among medical professionals or anyone that having children undergo first puberty blockers, then cross-sex hormones, which naturally stops their adolescent development, inevitably makes them incapable of having either sex, either reproductive sex, or even orgasms as adults. That there is, and at nine years old or 10 years old, a child is fully capable of consenting to this. That there is just no argument. Screw it. Now, it seems to me that when you're telling that to people whose own lives 
They say there was absolutely no difference between men and women whose own lives have just existed just by living. They read a thing. You are you obviously observe in your life the fact that men and women are different every day. And when these elites come and tell these people you're wrong, not only but they don't even say you're wrong. They say you're 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 a bad person because you think this. And my view is that in the short to long run, that's a terrible political position, and it will it will probably be obliterated this November. But what I'm struck by is how they're absolutely incapable of moderating the stance of saying, oh, well, maybe yes, or maybe we should wait on this, or maybe we don't have a strong position. Maybe this debate is occurring. Maybe there are countries in Europe where, in fact, they're realizing this, this method of treatment might be a little rushed and might require a further reconsideration. It's almost as if the post-liberal world in which we have these two sources of power fighting with each other, the reality becomes completely irrelevant. Yeah, well, maybe, but I do perceive on that particular issue that there has been a lot of pushback and not simply on the part of the Trumpist, you know, these kind of crude denunciations of, you know, a lot of things that they shouldn't be denouncing, but no more sensible. The, you know, the Economist had a whole cover about this issue. Yeah, the Economist they was taken, really smart. They, yeah, they, they, they yeah. a very brave stand on this. And, you know, I can imagine, you know, in five or 10 years, especially as more empirical information comes out that doesn't confirm, you know, the position that you just articulated, you know, this member of the administration promoting, you know, I, I'm not convinced that, you know, attitudes on this sort of thing could shift and, you know, in 10 years from now, people will say, I can't believe what people thought back in 2022, that they were taking such ridiculous positions. That is not, you know, inconceivable to me. But you brought up the T word, not just Trump. And of all the threats to liberal democracy, we do have these intellectual threats to it. In other words, as we said, neoliberalism, which is a kind of distorted excess of liberalism and woke liberalism, as you put it. But there's also this, and I think it's partly created by this popular sense that we're being run by an elite we don't agree with, and they're not tolerant of us. Then you obviously have the possibility of Trump. How do we deal with that? I mean, because if you don't want to support the woke left, you are stuck with the possibility of Trump. And Trump runs a party that's not just ideologically, but it's actually dedicated at this point to believing that the system itself is rigged and to de-rigging it if they ever lose in the future. That's a very profound threat. And I think it's important for me to point out that your book says very explicitly that of all the threats to liberal democracy today, that is the most immediate and pressing. Where do, what do we do? I mean, we're facing an election. I mean, I, if, if I'm faced with Trump-Harris next time around, what the hell am I going to do? Um, what are you going to do? Well, I mean, if it's Trump and Harris, I'm going to vote for Harris because I just think that the, the immediate threat from the Trumpist right is far more dangerous to our democratic institutions than, you know, these longer term threats that are posed by the, you know, by the left. So that's not a question. Well, what do we do in the first place? We try to fight back. I think that, you know, part of it is exposing, you know, how bad the, the, the Trump 
right is. That a lot of that's been accomplished, but you know, there's still more to be done. Like the January sixth committee in, in, in the in the House has been revealing a lot of really pretty damaging stuff. Their prosecutions and so forth. The main problem, I think, is the Democrats themselves that they're not offering a, a real alternative and. It seems to me it would have been very easy for them to have disavowed, you know, these just manifestly unpopular, especially in the swing state positions like defund the police or these positions on cultural issues like the ones we've been uh, talking about. But, you know, they haven't been willing to do that or they haven't been willing to do it effectively. You know, so President Biden in a state of the union, you know, says he's not in favor of defunding the police. But the one thing that Trump understood that he doesn't seem to is you got to, that's your position, you got to say it over and over and over and over again. Because, you know, I think average voters, if you asked what's Biden's position on this, they'd have no idea. So you got to have a simple message and you've got to repeat it uh, endlessly and you've got to put, you know, a little bit of action behind it. You know, they do have to come up with a, a candidate and there they've got a real problem because, you know, I think Biden has got a lot of, you know, I, I like him a lot. I voted for him, but he's he's going to have trouble getting reelected. I you know, have problems with Kamala Harris, but I don't see another Democrat waiting in the wings that could, you know, bear this uh, particular fight forward. So I'm really not quite sure what, you know, what to do at this point. Frank, I want to thank you for giving us this time uh, to talk some of this through, especially at a level where you don't often get to talk this through in public in terms of the philosophical roots of this. I want to thank you for the work that you've done in your life. Personally, it's really helped me understand the world. It helps that I find most of your positions eminently reasonable. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not, when I read this book, I'm like, oh, oh, thank God somebody's put it like this way. I felt this way about Jonathan Rausch's book this year also. Right. In right. some ways, just restating in, in, a, in a sort of narrative form and, and, and from the right acknowledging the errors that we have made too. The level of calm and curiosity that you bring is, is, is really a wonderful thing and a, a wonderful contribution to our republic. And I know that sounds super super uh, fawning and whatever, but I just, but it, I mean it and I thank you and, and we need more people like you. So please don't give up. Um, okay. Okay. <laughs> and, well, Andrew, thank you very much. I, I could say very much the same about uh, the positions and, and the things that you've said and written over the years. So, um, well, thank you. I'm delighted. Next week we have ever more fun coming. The other thing I want to say to you all is that we don't have any ads in this. We give it to you straight. We're not monetizing this in any way, except by your contributions of sub- subscriptions to the Weekly Dish. So another plug, if you love these conversations, if you want us to keep having them, and you don't want them interrupted by, by ads, or have me talk about why my latest lawnmower purchase was the most brilliant thing I ever did in my life, and you must buy it, then, then just give us a simple $5 a month subscription and and we can keep this going as we have until then lots of love happy summer it's coming i can feel it in my nose and i'll see you all next week <laughs>